0: We're continuing where we left off last week. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we just got through verse 5. Uh, the title of uh, the sermon is A Little Leaven, A Little Leaven. And uh, this is part 2 of that message, Keen in here on verses 6 through 13. Uh, the issue before us in 1 Corinthians 5 is the issue of immorality in the church. Uh, immorality in general, and specifically in these verses, the problem of an incestuous relationship that's mentioned in the first verse. And if this wasn't bad enough, the situation is compounded, you'll remember, by the fact that the believers in Corinth were not merely tolerating this kind of sin, but tragically they were even boasting about the kind of church that they were. And so Paul confronts them, as we noticed in last week's text, a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. We looked last week at the problem that the Corinthians were facing, this arrogance over sin, and we looked at the punishment that was to be inflicted on the sinning brother, So we'll pick it up now in verse 6 this morning. I want you to see a couple more Ps. We'll see, first of all, the picture illustrated. And then finally, the principle explained. So if you're taking notes, the picture illustrated, verses 6 through 8. Paul says here, your boasting is not good. Some of you are familiar with the Phillips paraphrase of the New Testament. Sometimes helpful in uh, putting some of these words into a little bit more modern phrasing to help us understand. Uh, The Phillips paraphrase of this verse says your pride in your church is lamentably out of place. Lamentably out of place. And then Paul uses a picture here which would be immediately recognized by his readers, particularly those from a Jewish background. But for us this morning, unless we're very well versed in the Old Testament, some of you are, But some of us may have trouble following exactly what he's referring to here as we get into verses 6 through 8. So let's keep a finger here and let's turn back to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, chapter 12, so we can put this picture in its context. Exodus, chapter 12. As you're turning there, the story in Exodus, chapter 12, is a familiar one probably to you. It's a story of the Israelite slaves being freed from their bondage in Egypt. And you remember that story, right? And so what happens is they're serving Pharaoh as slaves. They have been for 400 years. And their work was really hard. And they'd cried out to God for help. And God had raised up Moses with this message to be proclaimed to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then we remember the exciting story of how all these plagues start coming to Egypt. And it starts with the Nile River turning to blood. And uh, that's a, a feat in itself, isn't it? Miraculous. And then, of course, the frogs and the flies and on and on it goes. And, and along the way, Pharaoh would let up a bit. But then because of the hardness of his heart, he changed his mind. And then he wouldn't let the Israelites go. And so these plagues keep escalating and we get to the final plague. The tenth plague. And God says he's going to send his angel of death throughout this land. And he's going to come over all the houses in Egypt. And he's going to kill the firstborn son in every household. Unless there was a remedy. There was a remedy for those who would believe For the Israelites, unless they killed a lamb, a lamb without blemish and painted the doorposts of their house with that blood, then the angel, when it came over that night, would see the blood and would pass over that house. And the Israelites would eat a special meal consisting of lamb along with some other things. While all this was happening. According to Exodus chapter 12 verse 11. They were to eat this meal with their belts fastened. Their sandals on their feet. And their staffs in their hands. You see that? This is the same way many of you eat your breakfast in the morning isn't it? Before running out the door to, to get to the office or to catch a bus to school right? It says in verse 11. Eat it in haste. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Passover. Then in verse 12 he explains, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Then verse 13 goes on to explain this sign of blood that I just talked about. Verse 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. We're coming up on a memorial day here. This was a memorial day for the Israelites. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Notice verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Severe punishment. Now, God doesn't give an explanation here why they should do that. He just says, do that. It may be, perhaps, uh, just you know, thinking logically, that in the process of baking, uh, the bread will take time to rise, right? And, and time is kind of of the essence here, right? So maybe it might slow them down too much. Uh, I'm not a baker. I like to cook, but I'm not a baker. Uh, if you had to hurry up the process, uh, certainly cutting out the leaven or the yeast, the, the, the part that would raise the dough, uh, that would work. That would cut out some time, significant time. But regardless of the reason, whatever the reason, the yeast, the leaven is to be out of their houses. Verse 17, observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. He goes on again in verse 19. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. Verse 20. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Now back to 1 Corinthians 5. That's the background of what Paul uses as a picture here in our text to show the leaven or the yeast of sin that's still being tolerated in the lives of those who have been saved already by the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus. The yeast was somehow representative of the life that they were leaving behind in Egypt. That was the Israelites. They were going to a new life. They were going to the promised land. So on that same day, every year, Um, they would celebrate the Passover. They would clean out all of the yeast, all of the leaven. Why was Paul so concerned about all this? He tells us, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. For you bakers, you know this. Or a little bit of yeast will have an effect on the whole loaf of bread. In modern verbiage, we might say something like, it only takes one rotten apple in a barrel to make all the other apples rotten along with it. Paul is saying that whenever a church tolerates what is rotten in terms of sin, it has a devastating effect on the whole body. So what are we to do? Verse 7 tells us that. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. In other words, be what you are. You are unleavened. In, in, In the terms of this text, he's saying, you are righteous. You are clean. Why? Because these people had trusted in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Passover Lamb himself, the Passover Lamb to end all Passover lambs, the Lord Jesus. One sacrifice for all. Now, these people are already new. So Paul's saying, get rid of everything in your fellowship that would spoil and rot The whole group. Whenever a church compromises, and if you've lived any length of time in your life, you've probably seen this happen somewhere. Whenever a church compromises by tolerating deliberate, obvious, repeated sin in its fellowship, that church just becomes a charade. It becomes full of insecurities it becomes full of error verse 8 let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth celebrating the festival in the context of the corinthian church certainly points us to the lord's table which was instituted by the lord jesus during his last Passover meal, right? The night before he was crucified in the upper room with his disciples, when the Lord Jesus took the cup and the bread and transformed the old festival of the Passover into the new covenant in his blood, he did that right during the meal. Right during the Passover meal. And so we should celebrate as well. This morning, we will celebrate. But when we do, our relationships with one another, Paul says, should not be marked by malice. Should not be marked by malice. Malice is a vicious disposition. It shouldn't be marked by evil, which is the acting out of what is in the sinful mind. Instead, our celebrations around Christ's table should be characterized by sincerity and by truth. Now, the word sincerity here is a great word. It only occurs five times in the whole New Testament. It simply means this, living underneath the light of the sun. That's what literally the word means. Living underneath the light of the sun of the Sun. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, let your relationships with one another in the body of Christ be lived out underneath the Sun so that they're not lived out in the darkness of a malicious heart, of an evil heart. They're not to be lived out in secret glances or whispering behind people's backs. To be out in the open Crystal clear, transparent, honest about everything so that the light can shine through them. So to summarize this, be who you are. Be who you are. Second Corinthians 5.17, you guys know this verse. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you are washed in the blood of the Lamb, when you are trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus to forgive your sins, to make you a new person, that's exactly what happens. You are made brand new. The church is a fellowship of brand new people. That's why Paul says, it is unbelievable that you would tolerate sin like this. You are unleavened bread. You are already righteous before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. How can you add? Even with great pride and arrogance, how can you add the yeast back in? It is rebellious. It is arrogant. It does not characterize people who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. That's the picture. Now, notice with me the concluding principle, the principle explained here, verses 9 through 13. In verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letters. So Paul had evidently written once before in another letter that we no longer have. It's not a part of the, the New Testament. That he had written to the Corinthians not to associate with sexually immoral people. And it appears that maybe the Corinthians misunderstood Paul. So he's giving some clarifying comments as to what he meant by his earlier instructions. He doesn't mean, Paul says, that the people of this world should be removed from our, our sphere of influence or, 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 or friendship. He's not saying that, that we cut ourselves off from everybody else. Verse number 10, he says, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, the sexually immoral people of this world, or the greedy uh, swindlers, idolaters, because in this case, you would have to leave the world. We understand this, right? This is easy to understand. Which Corinthian businessman could get up in the morning and not associate with immoral people in the city of Corinth? It would have been really hard to do that, wouldn't it? Which businessman in Indianapolis can get up in the morning and do business in Indianapolis without associating with immoral people? It would be hard. It would be impossible, wouldn't it? Paul is addressing something here that Jesus addressed in his day, too. Uh, you, you remember the Pharisees, right? Those wonderful people. They were, they were, they, they were kind of the high-level religious characters, weren't they? They, 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 would, they were masters at condemning everybody else while they would tolerate in themselves the same things that they condemned. They, they condemned sin on the outside, but they were quite happy to tolerate it on the inside. And, and look at what Paul says. He says, if you have to remove yourselves from sexually immoral people across the board, you'll have to become an astronaut, right? You've got to go out of the world. But what Paul is actually saying, verse 11, is that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. Underline that phrase in your Bible. A person who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, reviler, another word for slander, mocking, or a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a person, Paul says, do not even eat. Now, brothers and sisters, don't miss the implications of this this morning. The Corinthian church had grown pharisaical in that it condemned sin on the outside but it was tolerating sin on the inside it was it was trying to remove itself from the problem on the outside but it was giving in it was yielding it was acquiescing to the issue on the inside it's like somebody who goes around their neighborhood you probably don't have anybody like this in your neighborhood right it's like somebody who goes around the neighborhood you know, and say, look at all these dirty houses. Or look at all these people who don't cut their grass. Or look at all these people who don't wash their windows. Don't you hate that? And then when he goes home, he virtually needs you know, a mask and you know, giant boots to walk over the grass in, in his lawn. And, and, and he needs a mask to filter out all the dirt that's piling up in his house. This is a hard lesson for the church to learn. And I'm not sure how well the church has learned it even to this point in our society today. And here's the lesson that Paul was trying to teach. Sin outside the church is not nearly so dangerous as sin inside the church. What does the church spend its time doing? What Paul says it shouldn't do, as we'll see in just a moment congratulating itself boasting arrogant like a pharisee look we're not like other men are we're certainly not like these other wretched poor sinners sound familiar remember that story jesus gave paul says you've got the focus all wrong here paul's not ever telling the corinthians uh, to practice isolation when it comes to the world and it was never in the mind of jesus either Remember when he gave the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? You are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You don't keep salt in that salt shaker. You need it to put on the french fries, right? You, 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 You don't light that light and then put a basket on top of it. No, you need it to shine. It's a clear picture. But the church forgets that. We forget that so quickly sometimes. Sometimes it seems like our, our vision of what a church is, is just a cozy little place with nice little lights and nice little seats. And we can all come in and have a happy time together and tell each other how salty we are and how shiny we are. But we never go out and tell others. Paul writes to the Philippians, he said he wanted them to shine as lights in a dark place. He wrote to the Romans and said, don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And and here's, here's the bottom line. Anyone in the church who calls himself or herself a son or daughter of the living God, who is visibly and willfully and persistently living in a way that calls into question their profession of faith in Christ. Paul says, we're not even to eat with them. They are to be removed from our fellowship. Now, as I mentioned here, he, has, he, ha- he certainly has in mind at least the breaking of bread, the Lord's table at the very least but I think it goes further than that. Um, One commentator wrote this, Paul probably has in mind any kind of social setting where a meal is shared, because in the ancient world, sharing a meal with someone signaled fellowship and acceptance, which is evident. There's a, a good case study of this in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, when Paul, when Peter was eating with Gentile Christians in Antioch, and then he withdrew from eating with them out of fear when the people from Galilee came, from, or when the people from Jerusalem came that were sent by James. Uh, believers should refrain from associating with believers who are sinning unrepentedly, But we should should feel free to have social relationships with unbelievers. Now, there is at least here, I think, in this text, when he says, do not eat with such a person, I think there's at least a high view of who should take part in the Lord's table. Which we'll do here in a few moments. But I would suggest to you that you think seriously about what fellowship means in the Christian family. You should think, seriously, you should think more, um, more seriously about the possibility of not showing up for work on Tuesday. Because most of you are off tomorrow, right? You should think more about showing, not showing up for work on Tuesday than you should think about the possibility of not coming together and breaking bread with God's people in the church that you've committed yourself to. It's a big deal. What we do here at the table is a big deal. It's commanded by Christ. And when we come together around the Lord's table, we should, and Paul told us this later in 1 Corinthians, right? We should examine ourselves to see if our, our current spiritual health is such that we can wholeheartedly, worthily take part In the Lord's Supper. Sometimes, I think, we get an idea. And, and, you know, for whatever reason, habit, or maybe someone has told you this in the past or whatever. But I think sometimes Christians come to the communion service thinking like this is kind of an oil change. Like a once a month oil change, right? So uh, you get your life cleaned once a month when you come to communion. and, And for whatever reason. But it's not that way, is it, brothers and sisters? The whole point is we clean up first, and then we come, and then we come. So if anyone's harboring a sinful spirit or attitude toward another Christian brother or sister, they shouldn't even show up until they've made it right with that person. The Bible says that, Matthew chapter 5. If someone is living in willful sin... They shouldn't come in the hopes that somehow or other, through the communion service, they're going to get some kind of a a good feeling down deep inside that will make them not want to do those things anymore. No. You stop doing those things and then come to the table. And if you refuse to stop doing those things, then the church, your brothers and sisters, should say to you, don't come to the table. You're a walking contradiction. Get the sin right first. Cleanse out the leaven. Cleanse out the yeast. What does it mean to examine our lives as we come to the Lord's table? Or beyond that, as we consider fellowshipping with other believers, um, living with them in life and fellowshipping with them in life in such a way as there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong that needs to be resolved. They're accept- fully accepted, one another. Well, the text here focuses on five areas of behavior. Notice what how he mentions them. We'll go through them quickly. Number one, the church is to be utterly distinctive in relationship to sexuality. Um, young men, let me speak to you first. When it comes to a young woman's dating life today in terms of their own physical well-being, according to statistics today, according to surveys that have been done today, young Christian women are no less threatened in their experience when dating Christian men than when dating non-Christian men. The stats are that couples are having, Christian couples are having premarital sex just like non-Christian couples. Yet we are called to be utterly distinctive in relationship to sex. Number two, we are to be distinctive in relationship to greed or swindling is the other term that's used here. In an extremely materialistic, extremely covetous society in which we live, we as Christians are to live differently. Number three, utterly distinctive in relationships to idolatry. People today, they worship all kinds of stuff, don't they? They worship uh, the idols of fashion, the idols of success, the idols of sports, the idols of music artists, the uh, the idols of power, uh, the idols of politics. We're to be different. We're to be different. No idolatry. Jesus first. Number four, we're to be utterly distinctive in relationship to the tongue. He uses the word reviler. One of the uses and abuses of the tongue, of course, is the whole issue of disrespect in our culture. Disrespect for parents, disrespect for teachers, disrespect for any kind of authority at all. We, as Christians, are to be really, really, Difference. We're to be distinctive in this area. Number five, we're to be utterly distinctive in the matter of alcohol, not a drunkard. You know, the pendulum has swung quite a bit in this area, hasn't it? If you remember back, even going back to the 1950s, the 1960s, what was very popular in Christian churches was teetotalism no alcohol whatsoever. Today, it's a very different mindset in the church as, as a whole. It's a more casual approach to alcohol. When is the last time that you heard someone called a drunk? But in the, in the text here, the Bible calls this person a drunkard. The giving over of our bodies to any influence, to any substance that controls them is the absolute antithesis. It's the opposite of the Christian life. Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't get drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So a person says, Hey, I want to get drunk with wine wherein is excess. Fine, Paul says. For a person who does that and continues to do that and does not repent of that, Don't sit down and start a support group for them. Put him out of the church until he sorts himself out. Can you believe you heard me just say that? I didn't say that. 1 Corinthians 5 is spiritual dynamite. And we have to handle it with care. So what is the principle that Paul is explaining in these verses and with these illustrations? The principle is clear. Strict discipline within the church of Jesus Christ and complete freedom of association outside the church. Verse 13, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, that you be not judged. It says here we're supposed to judge those inside the church. What does that mean? Is there a contradiction going on here? Is Jesus against Paul? Well, it might look that way, but it's not, of course. What Jesus is saying in Matthew is that when you see and you identify sin in someone else, Let that be a reminder to you of how sinful you are as a person and clean up your own act before you start going to dig toothpicks out of other people's eyes, to use the other illustration that Jesus gives. What Paul is referring to here in 1 Corinthians 5 is to not have a judgmental spirit among the body of Christ. That's really what Matthew 7, 1 is talking about too don't have a judgmental spirit toward other people. Everybody's looking around, judging each other in their day-to-day routine. Paul's calling us to engage someone, engage a brother or sister in Christ. We do that a certain way. We do it humbly. We do it gently. We do it lovingly. But we do it when we see someone who is calling into question their profession of faith in Jesus Christ by the way that they are living, it is our duty as Christian brothers and sisters to engage them, to bring that to their attention, to call to them to turn away, to repent. That is an act of compassion. That is an act of spiritual care. And it's practiced in far too few churches. Strict discipline within the church. We are the bride of Christ. We must be pure. Complete freedom of association outside the church. It's not easy, but it's vital. I think it's also the key to effective evangelism. You know, the tragedy of so many of of our attempts at evangelism as churches, I think, lies in the fact that that we have separated ourselves so much from unbelievers that we only do Christian stuff with Christian people. And and that's good, right? Christian fellowship is good. But it's not the only thing that we're called to do, right? Sometimes we don't like to get messy. We don't like to go where there is sinful people. We don't like to go where we may hear something that that we don't like or smell something that we don't like or or see something that we don't like but yet we get too relaxed about sin in our own church in our own churches and then what happens like in corinth the unbelieving world walks into a corinthian church service and what do they see oh you guys are no different than us You've got the same sins. You've got the same problems. You've got the same garbage. So instead of being distinctive, instead of being salty, instead of being shiny, instead of being distinctive, the church is disguised. And when a a church lacks distinctiveness from the world, it takes refuge in judgmentalism and pointing out All the sins on the outside. Look at all the bad people doing bad things. What a surprise. All the bad people do bad things. Doesn't that shock you? And so Paul says, here's the principle. Purity in the church. Don't tolerate sin here. But penetration into the world. Don't isolate yourself from the world. Go to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be like them, but go to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up for a few songs here at the end, and I'll ask our leadership to come and prepare for the Lord's table. And while these people are moving, let's let's keep thinking here together for just a couple more minutes. Think about what these verses are saying what they may mean to our church. First of all, church discipline is not easy. We, are, we already know that, don't we? It's gut-wrenching. Um, and it goes against the prevailing wind of tolerance in our culture. Paul says at the end of the verse, at the end of the passage, purge the evil person from among you. Purge them. Put them out. Why should we practice this kind of discipline in Heather Hills? I think Paul gives us three reasons in our text here that we'll close with. Number one, church discipline helps unrepentant people who claim to be believers. It helps unrepentant people who claim to be believers. Putting people out of the church is the last resort of the church to warn a professing believer to repent. It's not the first thing we do. It's the last thing we do, calling them to repentance. It helps those people who are stuck in their sin. Two, church discipline helps the church. The church must remain pure. Discipline protects the church from sin spreading through the body like cancer or like yeast, like leaven. It helps us to endure. It helps us to persevere for the Lord Jesus. Third, church discipline helps the watching world. Unbelievers should not think that God approves of heinous sin. Discipline helps the church to be distinctive from the world, to adorn the gospel with beauty and attractiveness, to be salty and shiny in front of a lost world. Just a couple concluding thoughts here before we go to the Lord's table. We'll sing first and go to the Lord's table. Uh, First, I need to say this. The message would be totally incomplete if I didn't say this. We're all sinners, right? This passage isn't demanding perfection. Or else nobody could be in this church. Including me. But not everyone is a repenting sinner. All of the time. You know the difference? We're all sinners. Not everyone is always a repenting sinner. A repenting sinner is someone who when they sin... They confess their sin to the Lord. They turn away from their sin with the help of the Holy Spirit. No Christian should be able to be labeled a certain kind of sinner. Nobody should be able to come into Heather Hills and say, that person is a drunkard. Nobody should be able to come in and say, that person is a swindler. Nobody should be able to do that. Nobody should be able to label the Christians in this church because of repeated, unrepented offenses. Sin should not characterize the life of any of us. We are constantly repenting of our sins from the moment Jesus saves us until the moment he calls us home to be with him in heaven. At that point, we don't have to repent anymore, do we? We don't have to turn away from sin because sin will be no more in our lives. And we praise the Lord, look forward to that day. And the reason that we can repent, the reason why we can turn away from sin, the reason why when we fall, we can get back up and keep going is because of one reason. Because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Because the blood of Jesus covers our sins. And we're so thankful to that. One last thought. Heather Hills, how much time have you planned in your schedules in the next three months to be with unsaved, non-believing friends and neighbors? We all schedule things. I bet, I bet you almost everybody has something scheduled fun to do this summer. Maybe a vacation. Maybe a a visit to a friend or a relative's house. We've got our schedules full to the brim. How many of us have intentionally scheduled time written into the agenda of our lives, written into the agenda of our church's life, not just simply cozying up together on Sunday mornings, but getting out there to take the gospel to people who are on their way to a Christless eternity. But they're bad people. They're doing bad things. Yes. Yes. That's why we take the gospel to them. Right? Think about. It. Things to think about. Our schedules tell us a lot about our hearts. They tell us a lot about our priorities, a lot about our desires. Let's stay on mission this summer. And that means sharing Jesus with our neighbors. Brothers, if you would come, we'll stand to sing, and then we'll talk about the Lord's Supper and take it together.